It's the Adam Ragusea podcast, episode 56, coming to you from the couch in my wife's home office, which is one of the spots where we usually hang out with Pop-Tart, the Labrador Retriever. She's here on the couch with me right now. She's uh, not quite a year old, and yes, her name really is Pop-Tart. We let the kids name her, and I do think that Pop-Tart is a great name for a dog, though it puts me in a fraught position vis-a-vis the Kellogg's company, maker of the uh, toter, toaster pastry product marketed as uh, Pop-Tarts. Right here. You want another one? Come on, dog. Over here. You got to stay in the camera frame. Over here. Come on. It's right in front of you, dog. Oh, there you go. Sit. So I feel like someone in my position, if I was going to have a dog named Pop-Tart, I really should have tried to get some, like, fat corporate dollars for that. Like, I should have unleashed my agent, Colin, the best West, to see if he could, you know, shake some money out of the C-suite up in Battle Creek, Michigan for, uh, you know, naming rights for Adam Ragusea's new dog. Or at the very least, we could have uh, secured some permissions. Because, yeah, I don't know if Kellogg's is going to sue me for using their trademark in reference to a dog in published works such as this. I'm not sure if they could legally sue me, and in our defense, we do style the name Pop-Tart in reference to the dog as all one word, capital P at the beginning, and that's all. In contrast, the name of, you know, Pop-Tart brand toaster pastries is styled as two words, hyphenated, with the first P in pop capitalized, and the first T in tarts capitalized. And the name of the product itself is pluralized. They are officially Pop-Tarts, plural. Pop-Tart the dog is singular, all one word, and only the initial P is capitalized the way that we style that around here. I mentioned that so that everybody in the live chat can style Pop-Tart correctly, which I'm sure you all will. We are recording this episode of the Adam Ragusea podcast live on YouTube. So there are people in the chat box right now. Hi, everybody. I'm going to talk about dogs and food for like 20 minutes before I start engaging with folks in the chat for the remainder of the episode. Uh, I will read audience questions and comments from the live chat, but hold your fire. I will not be looking at anything in the chat for another 20 minutes or so. So if you're there, you know, feel free to chat with each other, but don't say or ask anything expecting me to like see it and respond to it. Yeah. So anyway, dogs and food. It's okay. You can go. You can go. You're done. You did your job. Okay. What? What? I have nothing else. Well, that's a lie. I've got something else if, if necessary. But uh, dogs and food. This is not going to be a rap about, uh, you know, dog food. It's about food and, uh, and dogs. Hello. Oh my goodness. Yes. Is it so interesting to you? Okay, here, I've got another one. Here, come on up. Come on. So you may have seen lately a bioethicist named uh, Dr. Jessica Pierce talking about pet happiness in the news. Dr. Pierce writes a blog about pet related issues for Psychology Today which is a magazine that I grew up around because my dad is a clinical psychologist, so we always you know, got psychology today at the house. But uh, Jessica Pierce has a number of books and you know scholarly articles and stuff out there talking about the ethics of pet ownership. Oh, you're going to be over there? Do I have to reframe the shot for you, dog? See, the, the, these, these are my placards for the sponsorship segments. Okay, come on. 
I'll move everything over here, okay? And you can just stay right there. Right, you good? You're good? Okay, let's proceed. So uh, Jessica Pierce, Dr. Jessica Pierce, uh, scholar, ethicist, uh, bioethicist, has a number of books and scholarly articles about the ethics of pet ownership and how those ethical questions kind of intersect with the uh, you know, animal cognition and interspecies communication stuff that people study. And uh, Jessica Pierce, Dr. Pierce, was the primary source for a Vox article that you may have seen published recently called The Case Against Pet Ownership. Uh, that article was by a fella named Kenny Torella. Hope I'm saying that right. Uh, Kenny writes about animal issues for Vox with a focus on like meat and meat alternatives. And I gather that Kenny's piece was a big hit. And so Dr. Jessica Pierce, the primary source for that article, has been making the rounds lately, right? She's I heard her on uh, an NPR show called Here and Now, which is uh, that's U.S. public radio. You know, I used to work on the other side of the cubicle wall from where Here and Now is produced in Boston. And I always loved how the show's producers used to just like yell and scream at each other in order to get their show on the air every day because a daily live legacy broadcast program only persists as a result of just a series of minor miracles simply willed into being by the producers and the editors who make the show possible. Anyway, I loved listening to Here and Now scream at each other in the lead up to showtime. Here, you want this dog? Come on. One more. I've got one more. Come on up. Used to love listening to the here and now folks scream at each other in the lead up to their show. And then immediately after showtime, they would go back to loving each other like siblings again. And that's how, you know, the, the, the leaders of the program have fostered like a really good, you know, team building environment um, so that people, you know, love and trust each other enough to yell at each other like their family when necessary, though certainly yelling is less necessary and less often necessary than most of us tend to imagine that it is in the heat of the moment. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. Anyway, dogs, Dr. Jessica Pierce, uh, her basic argument, if she'll forgive me for summarizing it crudely, her basic argument is that based on everything we know about like animal cognition and emotions and social structure and instincts and all of that, her argument is that our pets, and particularly our dogs, are probably not as happy as we imagine them to be. They may, in fact, be among the most miserable animals on Earth for the bulk of their lives. I mean, we imagine the life of a house dog to be exceptionally sweet. Who would not want to laze on a couch all day with their best friend? Hey, that's you and me. Seems like a much nicer life compared to the violence and deprivation no doubt suffered by a dog out on the street. But I remember back when we lived in Macon, Georgia, which was one dog ago. Uh, that was your forerunner, Pop-Tart, lived with us in Macon. Uh, I just used to drive through this very, very poor neighborhood near my house in Macon where there were just legions of street dogs. Um, like if you've, if you've only ever been to the Northern United States, you don't know how bad the stray dog problem is in the Southern U S and in, in cities specifically, especially poor, poor ones. There's just more people, uh, and poor, poor people in the South. And there's more rural people in the South. And, you know, even when they live in cities, they are often in the South generationally closer to life on the farm 
where people are a lot less precious about their dogs. You know, you may own a dog, but the dog lives like a free life, roaming around and doing whatever dog stuff the dog wants to do most of the day, which may include making puppies with another dog. Poor people may be less likely to sterilize their dogs, spay and neuter them because that, you know, costs money. Oh, did I say the bad word? Sorry, it's still a fresh memory. Mm, close your ears. <laughs> there's uh, there's just more poor people in the South, more rural people in the South, and, you know, it affects these things. And, and uh, you're just more likely to have stray dogs leaking out of the human systems here in the South. And once they're out, their odds of survival are pretty darn good compared to the odds faced by a stray dog in, say, like upstate New York or something. That dog is not going to survive the winter. <laughs> and not going to live to make puppies with some other dog. But in Macon, that dog absolutely will survive the winter and live to make puppies with some other dog. And in parts of Macon, you just have like packs of wild, feral dogs roaming around. And when I would drive in this really poor neighborhood near my house, there was a street called Columbus Road where a lot of the buildings were abandoned and dilapidated in a rough area, but there was uh, an auto junkyard where this absolutely lovely guy, uh, I recall his name was Caesar, if I'm remembering that right. Um, it's a nice guy, collected like dead cars and mined them for parts, um, or, or, or that's what his business appeared to be to me. And he always had a bunch of like stray dogs lazing around in front of his shop because he put out food for them sometimes and he put out like blankets and old mattresses and stuff for them to lie on. I imagine that they provided a valuable service in return, right? They probably scared away any potential thieves, which is basically why the wild ancestors of dogs first started hanging around human encampments in the first place one or 200,000 years ago. Because, you know, cows and pigs and sheep and such, um, you know, people started domesticating them with the agricultural revolution about 10,000 years ago, which really was not that long ago in the scheme of things. In contrast, they keep pushing back the date on the domestication of the dog because they just keep finding older and older evidence of dogs and humans living together. Um, the domestication process starting you know, at least 100,000 years ago with dogs and potentially much, much earlier. With farm animals, it only started about 10,000 years ago. Anyway, I would drive by these feral, you know, miscellaneous brown and black mutts hanging around in front of this guy Caesar's uh, boneyard. And at first, I would feel really bad for these dogs. I would think, oh, those poor guys, you know, they don't have any shelter. They don't have any flea and tick medicine. They don't have steady, high-quality feed or vet visits or baths or walks or snuggles or anything like that. That's what I thought at first. <laughs> then I kept driving by these dogs day after day. And I kept thinking, you know, for a dog, that could be an awfully sweet setup. And then one day I was coming down Columbus Road, coming up on the dogs, and one of them gets up off of Caesar's little front stoop and the dog just darts across Columbus Road almost right in front of my car like I barely missed hitting this damn dog and as I drove past I looked in my rearview mirror to see what was so important that the dog had to spring across the road at that particular moment risking its life and limb why did the stray dog cross the road right 
So I look back in my mirror and I see the dog emerge from the tall grass on the opposite side of the road with a giant, apparently full McDonald's bag in its mouth, like probably full of trash, this McDonald's bag. But I would bet that there was like a piece of bun soaked in special sauce or something in there or some spare fries or a half eaten McFlurry. I mean, probably not a half eaten McFlurry because we all know that ice cream machine is still is not working. But there was probably like a wealth of scraps in that bag. That dog had struck the jackpot and he knew it and he was not going to wait for me to drive past before claiming his prize. And at that moment, I wondered, you know, is this the life that my dog wishes she was living? And indeed, Dr. Jessica Pierce, pet ethicist, an ethicist who concerns herself with pets. She's not a pet herself. So (laughs) Dr. Jessica Pierce ethicist working on pet issues argues that yeah like feral dogs probably are living their best life or they're living something much closer to their best life than the lives that we provide dogs inside our homes and she's not just like arguing from her gut she has data to back this up she looks at behavioral and physiological markers of stress recorded by veterinarians and such and she concludes that most house-kept dogs, like the kind that was right here on the couch next to me until she decided that she wasn't ready for her close-up anymore, Dr. Pierce concludes that most house-kept dogs are going completely batty these days and acting out and chewing everything in sight because we are restraining them from acting on one of their most basic impulses, which is to forage for food. Dogs are scavenger hunters. They'll chase down some live prey, but they'd be just as happy nosing around for an old dead whatever in the grass to eat, right? It's just something they were born to do, to roam around with their pack, combing the ground for something disgusting to lick up. Dogs have a lot of mental energy and sensory capabilities set aside for doing exactly this. And when they can't use those capabilities, they have to turn them to something else, like finding socks of yours to destroy. And when you take those socks away and the dog eventually just plops down and goes to sleep, it might not be the peaceful, contented sleep that it looks like. In fact, for the live audience here, let me show you where Pop-Tart is these days. There she is. Now, you're welcome to come back up, Pop-Tart, if you ever want to rejoin the program, okay? All right. Glad we talked about that. So, there's reason to think that most of our house dogs are leading lives of quiet desperation and... Dr. Pierce says it wasn't always this way. This is a unique feature of contemporary canine husbandry. Because back just like a generation or two ago, most people who had dogs like didn't dote over them as much as you know, maybe we do today, and they didn't contain them so much. They didn't worry so much about where the dog goes when the dog goes outside, right? This is how it was in my family. Uh, Growing up in uh, rural central Pennsylvania, we had two Labrador retrievers in succession. We had Bess, who died when I was, I think, in second or third grade, maybe. And then we had Sophie, who died the day before my wedding, She made it real long. Uh, We lived out in the woods 
And when we let the dog out, we let the dog out. Like there was no rope. There was no chain. There was no fence. She would just wander probably like a mile or two away sometimes because sometimes we'd go outside and we would call her back home and it would take her a long time to come home and sometimes she wouldn't come home you know for hours and sometimes she'd come home smelling of the rotting deer carcass that she'd found (laughs) which is what she was born to do for god's sake indeed us kids grew up the same way all of us In our little neighborhood in the woods in central Pennsylvania, there was like four or five families out there who all had kids around my age, which was a miracle in retrospect. And we grew up leaving our houses and getting on our bikes and riding miles and literally miles away from home with no cell phones, no maps, no money. Um, And doing this like as young as my kids are now, at least the older one. Like, we would just vanish into the wooded mist like the kids in Stranger Things. I mean, Stranger Things is about my childhood, up to and including all of us learning how to play Master of Puppets on our guitars. I am filled with so much gratitude for my feral childhood, and I am filled with sorrow knowing that mine was among the last generation of at least American kids to grow up with that kind of laissez-faire parenting. You know, lots of kids still get neglected these days, of course, but that is not the same thing. Like, my parents were not neglectful in the slightest. They were boomers, right? They were ex-hippie boomers, all into feelings and positive reinforcement and Mr. Rogers stuff, you know? They were really very involved in my life. You could even call them helicopter parents at times, but I would still get to be a latchkey kid who came home from school alone when I was really little, and I'd wander into the woods with no real restrictions as long as I got home for dinner at 6.30. And to do the same with my kids now seems completely insane. Like, if they didn't get hit by cars or shot by armed neighbors enacting the castle doctrine or whatever, there's a chance that they would just get picked up by cops and we would be charged for reckless endangerment or something, you know, child neglect, child endangerment. I'm sure there are still places in the United States and in countries like the United States where kids do get to grow up beneficially wild, but those places are few and far between nowadays, or at least they're, they're thinly populated, which is why the feral childhood works there. But, you know, in that situation, not very many children can grow up in a thinly populated place because if a lot of them get there, it would become thickly populated, thicker. Um, you know, most, most U S kids these days grow up in suffocating suburbia where automobile-oriented development creates an environment where cars are just whizzing by around your ears at speeds that virtually assure death in a vehicle on pedestrian collision. It's not safe to walk, and there's nowhere to walk to because there's no woods, there's no wild land where kids can just like throw rocks into ditches or do whatever they want to do without some grown-up hassling them. Every inch of ground is owned and protected by someone with a ring camera and an AR-15, so the environment is not wild enough to get lost in, but at the same time, the environment is too wild for actual urban living. 
you know, suburban kids can't walk down to the corner store to buy candy like city kids can because there is no corner store in suburbia. Or maybe there is. Oh, hey, dog, you want to come back? Or maybe there is a corner store in suburbia, but it's like an automotive oriented convenience store and there's literally no safe way to walk to it. There's no sidewalks. There's no crosswalks. It's just an endless moat of parking or whatever. This is in contrast to how like true city kids grow up in actual city centers with dense mixed use development and pedestrian infrastructure. So what I wonder is like, is the world really more dangerous for kids now Or have we just gotten more sensitive to the dangers that were always there, right? Because we're not having eight or ten kids like our great-grandparents did. We're only having one or two kids, and therefore each kid is way more valuable to us. We can't afford to have one kid hit by a train or something while he's out wandering. So we protect the kids that we have to a fault, I think. I mean, maybe we do that. Maybe we've just gotten more civilized and therefore softer, Um, more sensitive to the injury of a child, right? Hey, dog, stop eating that. Hey, Pop-Tart, hey, hey, no chewing. That's a pen, you ding-dong. No, come here. Hey, you donut, come here. Hey, come on. I don't have time for this. I got to do my thing. You're eating a pen. Got it. Ha, there's the pen. Okay. Maybe we've gotten more civilized and therefore softer, right? Soft is the goal. Most of us don't want to live in the kind of environment that makes people really hard. I'm guessing that it's all of the above, right? The reason why I don't want to stick my kids out the front door the way that my parents did to me when I was little. Regardless, I absolutely do not feel safe kicking my kids out of that front door. And I definitely don't feel safe kicking Pop-Tart out the front door. Pop-Tart, the uh, new dog in the Ragusea house, if you're just joining the live stream late. Here she is. She's right there looking for trouble. Mm -hmm. So in our neighborhood in Knoxville, dogs do get out all the time. And the neighborhood Facebook group is on it. Like the second a dog gets out, you're going to see a whole bunch of just like blurry phone photos that say, oh, this poor baby is is lost near Sycamore Lane or whatever. So if I just kicked my dog out the door to wander, and if she didn't immediately get flattened by like an oversized SUV on the road, well, all the neighbors would freak out and eventually get mad at me, right? They'd tell me that I'm abusing my dog. They'd tell me that it's only a matter of time before the dog attacks someone, you know, attacks a cat, attacks... You know, just jumps good-naturedly on an old lady and knocks her down or something. And those are valid concerns, right? So this is why I bought a house with a large fenced-in backyard. Or it's one of the reasons I bought a big fenced-in backyard. Brits would call it a back garden, of course. So I've got a fenced-in yard. And yet, I won't put the dog in the yard by herself because I've seen what she gets into out there. <laughs> like, I've seen what she destroys, I put a lot of work into the landscaping at my house, and I don't want all my flowers dug up. I don't want her eating the mushrooms or the groundhog poop or the rocks or the dirt. This dog 
literally chews rocks unless I stop her. Now, in her defense, she, is sh- she has shown something of a preference for like old chunks of concrete or blacktop that she finds uh, as compared to, you know, naturally consolidated rocks. I'm guessing the concrete is a little more crumbly. It's a little easier to chew. Is that what it is? Yeah. Pop-Tart has standards. You have standards. Yeah, you do. That's what she does with me standing right there next to her in the backyard. Lord knows what she would do if I left her out there alone to engage in the scavenging behavior for which she was born, right? Like, even if I didn't care that much about her well-being, I wouldn't want her barfing that stuff back up again inside the house. She's still a big puppy. She'll probably chill out in a couple of years, and then I can start letting her go out back by herself a bit, I'm sure. But most other, like, urban and suburban dog owners make very similar calculations in their own heads, and now our dogs rarely get to wander, right? We take them for a couple of walks a day. Don't eat the computer. We take them for a couple of walks a day. I run with Pop-Tart sometimes just to tire us both out, but you know, physical exercise is not really what she needs. What she needs is the mental exercise of looking for food, which is something she is supposed to spend most of her waking hours doing. And when she can't, she goes looking for pens. Or is this some kind of like cosmetic device from under Lauren's desk? I don't know. Anywho, Dr. Jessica Pierce, noted pet ethicist, says that when she takes her dog for a walk, the dog is in charge, right? She lets the dog sniff out a trail in any reasonable direction and she follows the dog and they move at the dog's pace which is usually very slow because you gotta sniff right i've been trying to do that with pop tart lately just let her lead the walks and i provide her with all the comforts that a dog could expect and monthly flea and tick medicine and heartworm medicine and trips to the vet i'm sure pop tart will outlive any of the feral mutts hanging out on columbus road back in macon but A mature view of life and death observes that death isn't anywhere close to being the worst thing that can happen to you. And comfort isn't the best thing that can happen to you. Like grass-fed beef cattle, grass-fed beef cattle raised the right way by conscientious, humane ranchers, right? Those cattle may indeed live better lives, all things considered, than the life that Pop-Tart will live, right? She's going to live longer because <laughs> most beef cattle these days only live a couple of years, max, sometimes a year and a half, right? But the cattle born on a good ranch spend their the days that they do have doing 100% what they want to do, which is to stand in a green field and chew grass. That's what the cow wants to do. And pet ants, yes, I know it's not literally a cow. Cattle. Pop-Tart almost never gets to do exactly what she wants to do. Her life is a constant, comfortable Captivity. And how does that sound to you, honestly? 
because death isn't anywhere close to being the worst thing that can happen to you. And comfort isn't the best thing that can happen to you. That's true for dogs and it's true for people. Sometimes I wonder if our modern, highly dysfunctional human relationship with food is rooted in the fact that we are born scavengers too, just like the dog. I mean, look it up. We humans have the level of stomach acidity that you would normally see in animals like dogs that eat old dead things, right? We are hunter-gatherers, just like dogs, you know? We hunt a little, but we're mostly supposed to spend most of our waking hours just wandering around, combing the ground for anything to eat. We're supposed to have food on the brain most of the time because we need to be constantly looking for food just to get barely enough food to survive, right? At least that's how it worked on the plains of East Africa for which every single one of us humans was evolved. That is home for all of us, right? Most of us are very, very far away from home now. Food is everywhere. Food is everywhere. You don't need to think about it all the time. And yet we do because we're born to. And usually that ends up with us just eating way too much food or spending way too much on food or wasting way too much time watching food videos on the internet. So with that, I think that uh, I'll start reading some questions and comments from the live chat. For the moment, I'm going to prioritize dog-related content in the group chat for the sake of uh, a smooth transition out of what we've already been talking about, but eventually we'll just go with the flow. And the flow flows to our first sponsor of the episode, which is Trade Coffee. The kind people who keep me in a custom curated feed of delicious coffee flowing right to my door as fast as I want to drink it. Yeah, Pop-Tart, check it out. Drinktrade.com slash Adam Show if you want to support the Ragusia pod and also get a free bag of coffee with any subscription purchase. Drinktrade.com slash Adam Show. Trade is not a coffee store, nor are they a coffee roaster. Trade is a coffee subscription service that makes it very easy to discover new coffees and to brew your best cup at home every day. As a dog combs the land for putridity to devour, Trade combs the land for independent coffee roasters who are sourcing their beans ethically and they are producing fresh, interesting bags of coffee for your enjoyment. Trade has professional tasters who look for great new things and they match those coffees with your stated tastes, like what you like. I like bright, acidic coffees, but I also like to be surprised, and that's what I tell Trade. You know, They send me something unexpected and delightful, as often as I want it, and all bags are roasted within 48 hours of shipping because it comes to you directly from the roaster, right? Actually, fresh coffee is just so much better, and you'll, you'll taste it. Have a better year by upgrading your morning routine with better coffee. Right now, Trade is offering you a free bag of coffee with any subscription at drinktrade.com slash adamshow. That's uh, drinktrade.com slash adamshow for a free bag of coffee with any subscription purchase. Thank you, Trade. Now, dog, that's a piece of plastic. You can't have that to eat. Thank you. And uh, let's check out the... Uh, Check out the chat box. Okay, so people are asking some specifics about Dr. Pierce's research 
um, and uh, you know how, how they measure dog happiness and stuff like that. And I would simply refer you to you to one of her many books on the topic. Uh, you know, not really, not really uh, my area of expertise. You know, people will. You know, I, I guess I could talk a little bit about food. <laughs> um, you know, like is it is it ethical to feed your dog uh, the stuff that we usually feed dogs, which is not. Hey, charging bricks, expensive Apple charging bricks. We do not eat those. No, 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 we do not eat those. What do we eat? We eat kibble, right? So the dog eats kibble. And, you know, um, the thing about kibble mixtures is that in addition to being like very efficiently produced, you know, um, I'm, I'm sure the profit margin on dog food has got to be fantastic because it's just so, you know, they're, they're just using byproducts from other industries mostly. And which is not a bad thing. Efficiency is good. You know, efficiency is good. And, uh, and they're, those feeds are perfectly formulated for the dog. So if they only eat that, they're going to be fine. They're going to get all their macros and all their micros. And if you diverge from that, right? Like if you, you know, every now and then give them, a you know, some human food, then yeah, you risk kind of diverting them from that, uh, from that perfect diet. But then again, for God's sake, it's just a dog you know it's just a dog and indeed okay so who's asking this so oh i i lost your i lost your chat oh oh i'm so sad okay so somebody asked something that's really important which is like why essentially it's like how you how i personally square the ethics of like doting over my dog while i also like kill and eat animals which is a perfectly fair question. And I'm not, I don't want to get into like all the specifics of my ethical calculations on meat eating. I mean, that's that, that deserves its own very long episode that I, I don't even really <laughs> want to do, but I'll do it at some point. Cause it's, it's important. Right. Um, you know, but I don't know if y'all saw it, but like there was, um, I believe it was a sub organization within PETA people for the ethical treatment of animals did this like viral social media campaign where they pretended to be, and forgive me, PETA, if this wasn't you, <laughs> um, I, I, I just recall that it was you, um, but it was, it was an awesome, it was a very clever campaign. So the clever social media campaign, I don't know if you saw it was they had like these beautiful dogs in a picture and it's like, you know, here we are down at farm Dogworth or whatever. And these, these, uh, dogs have, you know, lived a wonderful rich life out here on the pasture. And, uh, now their time has come and it's, we're ready to harvest them for meat. Right. And let us know how many pounds of dog meat you want. And the intent of this very clever kind of advertising campaign was to point out how hypocritical it is that some of us, dote over our dogs and yet we kill and eat animals who are easily as intelligent like do like look it up dog intelligence dog cognition is not remarkable like they're not that they're not notably smarter than other mammals about their general description and you know, size and everything okay hey please do not eat the brick come here you can't eat it it it, it can't happen you can't be eating this anyways and that's what the intent of the ad campaign was. But the funny thing was that all it did was basically reinforce to me the notion that the way we treat our dogs is completely insane, right? Like, like I, I am a humanist, I'm a card-carrying secular humanist. I believe that humans are fundamentally very, very special. 
Um, you know, quite possibly the most special thing in the entire universe is the human race, possibly. And we are more important than they are. Okay. I don't believe that they have, that they're all that sentient. <laughs> like I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's a spectrum or gray area, right? I don't think that they're that intelligent or sentient and I'm not that concerned with their well-being. Honestly, I didn't even really want a dog. Um, another dog, like our dog back in Macon was, was a lovely dog, but she was, you know, a traumatized shelter dog. And we dealt with a lot of problems. And I, you know, the reason that I consented to get a dog when Lauren wanted to get one was that I do think that like kids should grow up with animals. I think that's important for them developmentally on a number of levels. And I wanted to get chickens, but Lauren didn't want chickens. So we compromised on a dog. Okay. Or I wanted a goat. I might still get a goat. We'll see. So anywho, you know, I, I, I kind of think that like, what I try to remember is that we have the dog for us, okay? The dog is here to serve us. Um, that's why we have them, and that's why we invite them into our homes. Even if we think we're doing otherwise, that's not really true. It really is about us, and so, yeah, I don't really care. And I mostly see the dog as like a thing where children can practice empathy and seeing how things that they do cause pain to another living being or make another living being feel good. And I don't think that that's intrinsically super important. Like I love Pop-Tart, but I don't, yeah, I know I was talking about you, but I, you know, I don't think it's really that important if you are well-treated in the scheme of things. Um, what's more important is that like the kids get the opportunity trying to learn how to treat you well so that they can then apply what the, those skills to how they treat humans later in life, which I think is a lot more important. But I also think it's important to treat animals well. You know, I always say to the kids, you never hurt an animal with no reason, right? Because kids instinctively just want to pull the wings off of flies and stuff like that. And I'm just like, no, you never hurt an animal unless you have a good reason to. And uh, needing food is, broadly speaking, a good reason. Now, is does that logic justify like the industrial meat making apparatus as it has evolved in the United States and in similar countries uh, or countries that have imitated the United States subsequently? No, I don't think it does. Like I, I really, you know, I, I, I eat way less meat now than I used to. And I get it mostly from places I really trust. And I think that that's important, but I also don't presume to lecture you about that because only you know about your situation and how much money you have and you know what what you need to eat in order to be healthy what you specifically need to eat in order to be healthy and i that's that's for you to kind of figure out for your for yourself you know so um yeah Brandon Vincent says, uh, nowadays we are so far removed from what meat is. My grandma would never buy a chicken breast or a boneless, skinless thigh. She buys the whole chicken and breaks it down. Yeah, that's awesome. I do wonder if if treatment of animals was more, hu like farm animals was more humane back in the day when uh, most people were kind of rearing and, and killing their own animals. I wonder if doing that actually de de dehumanizes the animal more in your eyes and you end up treating it even more callously because you're just living every day in the harsh realities of the farm, which always makes me think of if you've ever seen, like st stop watching this right or listening to this right now if you've not seen it, but um, the old footage of Werner Herzog, the document, the German documentarian, or is he Austrian? I don't know. Werner Herzog, um, 
in the jungle making a documentary about the jungle and saying that like it's it's just violence it's horrible violent profanity and fornication and violence and i but i i don't hate the jungle i love the jungle i love i i love the jungle against my better judgment <laughs> uh yeah. Anyway, the point is, is that like nature, like like the, nature is cruel. Like we are the least. I I would guess that we are the least cruel as a people than we've ever been at this very moment, and it's because prosperity has made us soft in a number of ways. And you know, in general, I think it's good. Like no one, no one. People think they don't want to be soft, just like people think they don't want to be old. But as they, you know, my. Uh, physician says as i get older (laughs) is uh you know old is the goal old is the goal right you want to live long soft is the goal because you want to live the kind of lifestyle that makes you soft morally soft right like sympathetic living an easier lifestyle is what leads to that to some extent you know because you have the you have the time you have the latitude you have the privilege of being able to consider lots of things other than your own immediate needs Oh, thanks. Are you okay? How are your immediate needs over there? Come here. It's all right. Just get out from underneath it. She she collapsed the uh, step stool onto her, which sounds way worse than it is. Would you just come over here? I'm not going to get up and lift it off you. All right. What else is saying? Uh, so Lemonhead says plant-based meats like Beyond and Impossible are touted as being more environmentally friendly than beef, but they have their own environmental costs too with the land use, water use, and GMOs, etc. Thoughts. Thank you, Lemonhead. I, boy, that is so complicated and it, it really depends on the specific meat alternative product you're talking about and, you know, and compared to what? Like you're eating the impossible meat compared to what? And so there's, it's, you cannot give an accurate blanket answer to a question like that. And I, Personally, I think you should be really suspicious of anyone who does, right? Because any content creator or whoever, I mean, unless it's like an actual freaking scientist with credentials, if it's just a dude like me, and they say that clearly this one product is environmentally better than the other, unless they've really interrogated that, and they give a lot of detail to that assessment, I would be suspicious of them. You know, because beef, I mean, even the case against beef, the environmental case against beef is really complicated. And that's something I will do a whole video about at some point if I feel like I can wrap my head around it and find the right experts. But, you know, the basic thing is, you know, the biggest environmental, you know, in most experts' opinions, and certainly in my opinion for what it's worth, like the most, the biggest hazard environmental hazard that the beef industry poses is its contribution to global warming, which is, you know, cows as they are digesting their grass they burp uh and to a lesser extent toot um uh oh gosh what is the hydrocarbon that they toot it's called oh somebody in the chat knows methane right so methane you know oh thank you uh dank dank jeb oh my god is dank jeb like jeb bush but he smokes that's awesome. I love that image. Okay. Uh, methane. So methane is like an incredibly powerful greenhouse gas. It has a much stronger, I think it's something like a six times the greenhouse effect of an equivalent amount of just carbon dioxide, right? Um, and that's that's real bad, right? But on the other hand, what you could say is that when cattle are grazing off of grass, especially, um, they're contributing to a closed carbon cycle, 
right? There's surface life stuff. There's surface carbon-based matter on the planet that is mostly organic material, right? And life forms on the surface are constantly eating that carbon and then putting that carbon into the atmosphere. And then it gets sucked back out of the atmosphere into the plant, that the cow is going to swing back and eat again the next day, right? Like the, the grass cannot grow without taking carbon out of, out, of the ox, out of the atmosphere to contribute to its own growth, right? So what like the beef industry apologists will say, and it's not, the argument is not totally without merit, in my opinion, um, take it for what it's worth because I'm just a dude on the internet. Um, what the beef industry apologists will say is that cattle are not contributing any new carbon to the environment. They're participating in the closed surface and atmospheric carbon cycle. Um, and the, the reason that you know fossil fuels are so incredibly injurious to the climate is that that's, that's not surface carbon. That's what they call sequestered carbon, carbon that has been trapped for millions of years under the ground and to bring it all up to the surface at once, which is what we've been doing since the dawn of the industrial revolution. And that, you know, the last 200 years counts as all at once in geological t time. Right. Um, so when you bring it all up at once, then yeah, you have the potential to like introduce a lot of new carbon to the atmosphere and that could really mess things up and seem, it seems like it is really messing things up. Uh, Cows are not part of that. They're part of the closed surface carbon cycle. That's what the beef industry apologists will say. Now, the counter argument to that is that the cows are not just burping carbon dioxide. They're burping. Oh, I'm so. Would you just get out from under the, the ladder if you don't like it? Like you could literally just walk away right now. Like just make all I'm asking is that you own your choices, dog. Okay. Just own. Can, can you own your choices? Thank you. See, barely sentient. Anyway, uh, the counter argument to that is that the particular kind of methane that, do that, that cattle, cattle uh, burp out, the particular kind of carbon is methane, which is far more powerful of a greenhouse gas than the carbon dioxide that would be released if you simply burned that grass instead of feeding it to a cow. And therefore... That's why you know very smart people think that the beef industry is probably contributing very substantially to global warming, and that ain't great. Um, I find myself increasingly, when I do eat meat, eating beef, um, because I have fewer animal welfare concerns with beef. Um, beef that's you know that's where I get it from guys that I trust. Like that 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 cow has lived; those cattle have lived incredibly you know, cushy, nice lives and were killed quickly and humanely. And I have no problem with that. Um, but I still worry about it chiefly from a climate perspective, but you can't answer the question is beef bad for the environment without first dealing seriously and realistically with what you're comparing it to. What would people eat instead of the beef? What would they grow on that ranch land instead in other than beef? Would they grow anything? A lot of ranch land is really, really, you know, dry and semi-arid in the United States, certainly, right? You really can't do much else with most of the land that we use for grazing, or at least that's that's what the ranchers like to tell us. Don't know how true it is. I imagine it's somewhat true, right? Uh, you know, what, so what would we grow instead? And where would we grow it if we, were, if we weren't growing 
cow meat there. We'd probably be growing another thing somewhere else, and it might be just as bad for the environment. We, it's, it's, I doubt it. <laughs> so I generally encourage reducing meat consumption, and that's what I'm doing in my own life because I think it's probably the safest bet. You know, and maybe I'll stop eating meat entirely one day. I don't. I don't know. I certainly don't. Don't really need it anymore. You know. Okay. So I should go ahead and answer some more questions in the chat. Uh, Okay, so Blood Alchemy says, question, you've talked about YouTube sponsorships before. Last year, videos started showing the white graph with what parts of a video are popular or unpopular, and did that change my ad contracts? Uh, no, it didn't, because if you look at the what I think is the graph that you're referring to, which shows the like most viewed parts, which mostly is an indication of either you know, you you would be able to see some drop off with that if people are just leaving, but mostly what you see is the parts that people repeat. And if you look at it in videos like mine that have like in video sponsorships where I'm the one delivering the sponsorship, the most viewed um, spot in the video is always the end of the sponsorship because people are checking back in to see if they got past it, if they forward, if they were able to fast forward past it. And when they can't, they have to sort of, you know, watch the end of the, of the ad a little bit, and then they get back into the show. And, you know, to me, it's up to my sponsors to decide how best I can help them, you know, move some products. Right. And if they are concerned about that feature or want to respond to it in some way, then I would be happy to work with them. But what I imagine is that it's probably not hurting their business because, you know, when people rewind to find the spot where the ad ended, they're going to be watching for the call to what they call the CTA or the call to action, which is where you say, you know, go to this website to save this money and get your buy your widget, whatever it is. And that's like the most important for them part of the ad for them to watch. And it seems to be the most popular part of every video that I put up for the reasons that we've discussed. And I would imagine that that's just fine for my fine sponsors, which of course includes Indeed, other sponsor of this episode. Go to uh, indeed.com slash Ragusia to go ahead and get yourself a $75 sponsored job credit so that you can start hiring now with Indeed. Indeed is a job board. But the best one, right? Oh, that offer is good for a limited time, I should say. If you're hiring for your own business all on your own, you're doing something that's really much harder and more consequential than the live podcast hosting that I am doing right now, which is really quite hard, especially when the dog is acting up for reasons previously discussed on the program. And What you're trying to do, trying to hire people for your business, that's even harder than what I'm doing right now. You just need to breathe. You got to take it easy. You got to keep it simple. If you're hiring, you need Indeed, and here's why. You can attract, interview, and hire people all in one place instead of spending hours bouncing between multiple job boards. Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. Job seekers are there on Indeed waiting for you, and Indeed gives you a powerful suite of tools to help you find the right person with the right qualifications for your job. With Instant Match, Indeed Instant Match, you are... Over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment that they sponsor a job, and that's according to Indeed's U.S. data. Thank you, Doc. I know you're so interested in this advertisement, an advert, as the Brits would say. 
Let's say that Indeed spits out exactly the right person for you. What you can do then is message that potential employee through Indeed. You know, invite them to apply for your job. Invite them to take one of the Indeed assessments that allows you to test skills and knowledge. Invite them to do a virtual interview with you through Indeed. If you reach out to them, they are three times more likely to actually apply for your job. It's a big difference. Even better, Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Three million businesses worldwide know what's up. They find great talent with Indeed. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Ragusea. Offers good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit right now at Indeed.com slash Ragusea. Indeed.com slash Ragusea. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Question for you, Adam, from TK. TK says, I love your deep dives into food history. What is your approach when going down the rabbit hole of investigating the origin of food or a food custom? So uh, TK is not asking about my research process generally, but, but specifically as it applies to food history videos, which I don't do enough of. I would like to do more of those. Usually that involves for me finding a scholar, a specific scholar who is working on that topic. Like usually I can find someone it's their whole life's work is, you know, for example, where did the modern concept of the restaurant come from? Right. That's a video we did with an Indiana university professor, uh, Dr. Rebecca, something German Speer, something. I don't know what it was, but she did a great job. Um, and I just, you know, I find the right scholar. I go put a camera on them. I help them sell a few books as a courtesy. And that's usually what I do. And that, and that works. There's a couple of tricks there though. Um, one, you got to make sure that the scholar you're going to talk to about a historical topic or really any topic is not like a fringe figure. Okay. And if they are a fringe figure that doesn't necessarily disqualify them, but it requires that you're going to have to add a lot more context to yourself. And you're probably going to need to interview some more mainstream scholars in that field, unless you have the ability to really tell um, BS from non-BS, which I, I don't in, in most things, right? I, I, I defer to expertise excitedly, willingly, you know, and that's, is that an appeals to authority fallacy? No, I don't think so. But maybe me and Vlad Vexler could talk about that sometime on the channel. I'm going to call you Vlad. Anywho, um, so you got to make sure that the scholar you're interviewing is not is not a fringe figure who's going to be representing the, the history really differently than the way everyone else in the field would represent it, right? And that can be tricky um, because sometimes you're, I'm after doing something that's so niche, a historical topic that is so niche that there's really only like one person who's written a book about it or anything like that. And they're kind of the only game in town. And I just kind of have to hope that they're not crazy, you know, and I try to rely trust in the systems of university tenure review and, you know, peer review for publication and stuff to make sure that nothing completely insane is going to get um, you know, boosted by my channel. And I'm sure sometimes it does. And then the other thing you got to be careful for is to rec look at the scholar. I have to be careful for is when I look at the scholar or the expert that I'm interviewing for that food history video. And I have to ask myself, is this person an outsider? 
when it comes to what they're talking about. Like, are they inside the community that is being written about or are they viewing it from the outside? And if they're viewing it from the outside in some way, I have to make sure I get some kind of inside perspective. And when I don't, I always live to regret it. So an example, and this is this is not an expert screwing me, this is just me screwing myself as usual, would be a, a podcast episode recently where I talked about the wonders of Brazilian steakhouses, which are awesome and I love that. And I, I, I liked that episode and I don't think I said anything really wrong or anything. What I messed up was I was giving the history behind um, the Brazilian steakhouse institution and the particular geographic area that birthed it, which is called the Pampas, uh, you know, a, an area of, uh, perfect for cattle ranching that's around uh, Buenos Aires in, in Argentina, but uh, the southern province of Brazil is part of it. It's, other other countries have parts of it. But anyway, so I talked about sort of how the Pampas got populated by cattle and, and by cowboys called gauchos. And what I didn't mention was the indigenous people of the Pampas who were driven out by that activity. And apparently, like, it's not a mistake that I missed that. Um, the, you know, uh, powers that be in Argentina and elsewhere have worked really hard, apparently, to kind of expunge that part of their history from the record. And so, and they succeeded and they, they, they fooled me. They duped me. I just didn't, I didn't, when I was reading up on Brazilian steakhouses, I, I did not read anything about any indigenous population of the Pampas. And I guess I assumed that there was very little, if any, which, you know, which is not crazy for me to assume because I believe the you know indigenous population was much more concentrated on the uh, Western, uh, West coast of South America, pre-Columbia, um, pre-Columbian exchange, <laughs> exchange, Colombian exchange. That's such a benign way to describe mass murder. Um, anywho, I guess I should just go ahead and move on. But anyway, sorry to the indigenous people of the Pampas. Uh, that's the way that I screwed up because I didn't, I didn't consult an insider, right. The way I should have for that. And I guess I didn't think I needed to because it was just kind of an offhand and casual podcast where I was just talking about how much I liked my dinner at a Brazilian steakhouse. Um, but it, I, 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 it suffered because I didn't look at for somebody inside. So uh, let's see. Smiley's Prid. Smiley's Prid is asking, would you ever have Vsauce on the pod? I'd love to. Vsauce is awesome. Uh, lovely, lovely guy. Um, and... We, there's a, I don't know if I should tell you, <laughs> well, I can alert you to the existence of it as long as I don't throw you the keys, but there's like a discord server where a lot of, um, us people like me, you know, food tubers hang out and talk and, you know, we talk shop and help each other out a little bit, you know, give each other thumbnail feedback, whatever. And, uh, and Vsauce is there and is awesome. Um, I, the trick the trick with the podcast I have found is that very rarely do guests draw audience. Topic is what draws audience. Um, something that you can say in three words on your thumbnail that is going to pique people's curiosity and make them want to click. And even a big get interview has not historically done that for me when I've tried it. Now, my gets are my idea of a big get is like Vsauce, right? Um, 
And and maybe if I thought a little bigger, if you know the idea of my my idea of a big get was Gordon Ramsay or something, like I bet a lot of people would click on a video that promised a conversation between me and Gordon Ramsay, right? But it's never going to happen because I, for any number of reasons, like he's like he's like I try to be really happy and smiley in my public persona, but like Gordon Ramsay is pretty much the only like food world personality that I will consistently talk crap about in public because I just think he is so he's been such an overwhelmingly negative force on the world like his net effect on the world has been really negative i suspect um and i just ugh. anywho um fun fact got another email from like a casting agent who is looking to cast the next victim for a gordon ramsay reality show and they were very they they saw my channel and they're very impressed by my content and they're curious if we could get on the phone to talk about me giving up you know four months of my life or whatever it is you know to live in uh, uh, an isolated bubble, which is what you have to do when you do those reality shows. If you didn't know, you have to give them your phone, maybe, you know, because they don't want people, um, they don't want people, uh, breaking the news about who wins, who win the show, who won, who don't people doing spoilers for the show. So you have to live like a sequestered juryman for like for a few months while you're filming the show, while Gordon Ramsay abuses you and humiliates you, no matter how good you are, what you do, and. Uh, yeah, I, I, no, I can think of many things I would do before I did a Gordon Ramsay program and, uh, that list of things that I would rather do includes hitting myself in the face with a hammer. <laughs> All right. Uh, we can take like a couple more questions and then we gotta, we gotta go ahead and wrap this one up. Um, Hannah Dow asks, how come in your oven fries video, you instruct to add vinegar to the boil water to cook the potatoes slower? Why don't you just cook them for less time? Is that what I did in that video? I don't remember doing that in that video, but that sounds like the kind of thing that I would do. Um, so Hannah, um, so pH affects the breakdown of lots of the chemicals that kind of glue plant foods, plant foods together. Um, and for example, acid, low pH, will inhibit the breakdown of pectin, which is one of the reasons that we use pectin in like sour fruit preserves and such. It's so effective there. The acid essentially protects the pectin. And it's, it's way more complicated than that, the chemistry. And, you know, so don't, don't quote me on, on that <laughs> in my show that I'm going to publish that is being broadcast live right now. It's almost like it's radio or something. Anywho, um, the, oh God, what was I talking about? Hey, people in the chat, what was I talking about? Oh, the, the vinegar, right? The vinegar for potatoes. So what vinegar will do in your boil water for potatoes is that it'll inhibit the breakdown of pectin, which will kind of keep the potato together, but it will allow for the breakdown of other things. And what you end up getting with potatoes, for example, is... Um, cell sloughing, I believe is the technical term for it. Like the cells of the potato will, will break apart from each other, but they, the cells themselves will remain more intact and spill less starch into the solution, which would make things gummy and all kinds of things. And I, I forget what exactly advantage it would have <laughs> for the oven fries, but the other, the reason I took your question, um, 
is that I I want to emphasize that like I, I I do not stand by my earliest videos of which that is one like the videos that I was doing in my first year basically are just filled with all kinds of things that I would love to take back if I could but the internet is forever and even if I delete the video it's just going to get reposted by somebody so it is what it is you know what's done is done and you have to just improve and 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 move on but I was so green in my first year doing this that I made all kinds of like technical mistakes and culinary mistakes so, culinary mistakes all kinds of things and you know uh, bits of wisdom that I had absorbed f- uh, you know, chef wisdom that I absorbed uncritically, that I just kind of parroted uncritically in the videos, which is my early videos, which is not what I want to do. I'm kind of the opposite of that, you know? So everything I do in an early video, please, for God's sake, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, I don't even remember the oven fries video. I will never watch that video again because of how overexposed some of the shots are. I just can't live with that again. A human with a name says, Goose, you're easily my favorite YouTuber. Because of you, I want to be a chef and maybe get a food science degree. I am writing a paper on your auto lice video. Will you bring back the Q&As in comments? Um, So thank you, human with a name. And that all sounds great. Uh, I would absolutely encourage studying food science in college. That's got to be one of the just perfect undergraduate degrees. My God, awesome do it. And it, it would set you up so well for work as a chef. It would set you, set you up well for, you know, uh, s- steadier and probably higher paying work in the food industry, the kind of work where you get to like go into your office and then leave at five and <laughs> that's it. Right. So I would encourage you to keep following your, your heart in the direction of food science. And maybe it'll take you to some, a better job than working at a restaurant. Working at a restaurant is really hard and I tend to kind of consider it something like being a musician, uh, which I was before I, you know, failed at it. It's where my life started. Uh, the only reason to be a professional musician is if you're you're so good at it, right, that it's effortless and people just lap it up. Like the, the, the effortless stuff that you pump out there, people just love it. You know, Paul McCartney is in in that category right it's just it's just easy for him it's so easy or in the case of like classically trained musicians people like orchestral players you know there's people who can practice for 10 hours a day and then get ready for the concert and they kill it and they sound beautiful but they live a miserable life compared to the people who can who are so talented they can just show up with their violin and sight read the thing and they're they play it beautifully and they're done right um you get the same product in both result in both situations but only one of those people had a good time that day you know and that was mainly one of the biggest reasons why i quit quit music was just it was just like i'm not i can be i can make really good music but i have to work so hard at it and there's people who do things just as good and it, they just toss it off it's just like breathing to them and i should leave it to them the other reason to like be a musician a professional musician is if like you you can't do anything else you love it so much you have so much music in you that you have to let it out or you will die right that's that's a great reason to be a musician too i mean you're still probably in for a world of hurt in terms of your life but you have no other choice so you have to you have to do it you know it's like loving someone so much who well that's a bad example i don't want i guess i, I don't want to be uh i don't want to be advancing abusive relationships so forget i started that thought 
What I really want to compare compare professional music making to is professional food making, especially in restaurants, right? Restaurant work is, is so killer. It hurts people so much. Even the most successful people in the business are exhausted and their knees hurt and their restaurants usually don't make that much money. Even successful restaurants don't turn much profit. Uh, and it's a rough life. And the only reason to do it is if it's easy for you and the public laps it up, or if like you can't do anything else, it's what you have to do to actualize yourself. Any cost be damned, you know, you're going to live with the pain of working in a restaurant. So awesome. Do that if that's your calling, but otherwise, yeah, I'd say study food science and maybe get a corporate job. Now, what human with a name also asks is, will I bring back the Q and A's in the comments? So what he's, uh, what this person is referring to is, um, I used to do like a, an FAQ, like a FAQ, like a frequently asked questions. Do people say FAQ or FAQ or do people even say that anymore? Cause that's like an internet 1.0 term, <laughs> uh, from the early days. But anyway, I used to do like an FAQ in the pinned comment underneath every video. I don't do that anymore, um, human with a name. I consciously stopped for two reasons. One, I got better at anticipating what people would ask about or what their criticisms would be or you know whatever they would say that would need to be addressed by me. I got better at anticipating what that would be through experience. And so what I try to do is do the Q&A that I would do in the pinned comment. I try to do that in the video now or the pod, right? I try to anticipate what people are going to talk about. And usually, you know, the big things that I would want to address, I have addressed now in the show. And that's why I just don't need to put in the Q&A most times, the FAQ. Um, and then the other reason I stopped doing it is just it, I needed to I, I needed to stop engaging with my audience for my own good for any number of reasons. And I had to like kind of go cold turkey on audience engagement and reading comments and stuff. And then I was able to kind of gradually rebuild that in my life in a way that was, that was more healthy um, and still isn't super healthy, but I've kept it reasonably healthy, largely by ignoring most of it and trusting certain people that I have in my life to surface audience complaints, comments, whatever that I, I really should hear. Um, but I just can't cause I, I don't want to look because <laughs> it's just bad for me and probably would be bad for you too. If you were ever in this situation, people like to, they'll say things like, Oh God, these YouTubers, they have such thin skin or these politicians, they have such thin skin. Like you, you try it, <laughs> like you, you try you exposing yourself to that kind of mass public scrutiny, even in the case of like relatively inconsequential micro celebrity, like the kind that I enjoy, um, it, it's really rough, and uh, and it takes it takes a lot of learning to to figure out a, a productive way to do it, and maybe the best way is to ignore it. So uh, I can answer. I'll get into two more questions. Okay. Uh, ceiling fan asks Adam, given that you're a humanist, how do you weigh animal welfare against human economic benefit of maximally efficient meat production, i.e. factory farming. Yeah, uh, you you said it, <laughs> ceiling fan. What a smart ceiling fan you are. Oh, you're such a smart ceiling fan. You're so smart. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I certainly value, I value human life and I value the continued sustenance of the biosphere as we know it way more than I value animal welfare. 
It's, you know, that's not to say I don't value animal welfare. I do. But I think what happens to people is more important. And I think what happens long term to the whole biosphere is much more important. And if you can make meat and when meat production is more efficient, when, when farming in general and food production is more efficient, there are benefits to be realized uh, there. Not necessarily. There's all kinds of you know, conventional agriculture that is tremendously injurious to the environment, among other problems. But you know, the constant fight between the organic farming crowd and the conventional farming crowd is really which is better or worse for the environment. And there's, as I understand it, the science on that question is kind of inconclusive, mostly because it it depends a lot on which specific food you're talking about and which specific eaters you're talking about. And it's and how you're counting it, right? Like what what how how wide are you drawing the circle around the knock-on effects of that food that you're examining? It's really hard, but there's a strong scientific argument to be made that like the more efficient the food production is, the better it probably is for the environment in most situations. And that could include, factory animal farming that is unimaginably cruel um, to animals. And that's not great. So as a humanist, yeah, um, I value these things more than I value animals, but I do value animal welfare. And I am not down with modern factory animal farming, though it has made tremendous strides. Like a lot of the really horrific, you know, Upton Sinclair type practices have been reined in considerably. And that's not a matter of my opinion. That's like it's been researched, like go Google Scholar that shit. Like um, a lot of the worst abuses have been reined in, but terrible abuses still happen. And you could argue that the system itself is inherently an abuse. So that's why I increasingly buy meat from people I know who are raising animals, you know, out in the grass somewhere. I'm not sure if that's better for the environment. It's probably worse for the overall economy and the, you know, the the uh, of, of availability of sufficient material things for everyone in the world, right? Probably not great for that, but at least I'm pretty sure it's good for animal welfare. So that's what I, why I do it, and that's the best I can do. Uh, and that's that's what I have to say about that. Uh, David McDermott asks, "Do you ever wish that you had gone into food science as a career?" Uh, no, no. I think that my the food science job that I have, which is kind of a food science job, is like way better than like anybody else's food science job. Like this is freaking awesome. Certainly pays more than most food science jobs um, because ultimately it's not just a food science job. So no, I think I would not have done that. I do regret, I really regret not taking more chem in college. In fact, did I even take chem in college? I didn't take OCHEM in college. I took chem in high. I took like good, a really good high school chemistry class that helps me a lot to this day. But I wish I had taken college level OCHEM at Penn State. Like I think so many things would be so much easier for me right now. Um, but coulda, woulda, shoulda. It's hard to be mad about the choices that you made in your life when your life turns out as well as I feel like mine has. You know what I regret is who I hurt on the way here. Um, and that would include some animals, no doubt. Um, so I'm going to take one more question. Ba, ba, ba. Well, here's a comment from Martin Raymond saying, science communicators do a lot more to advance science than scientists do sometimes. Appreciate that, Martin. And I appreciate you 
qualifying that at the end, giving yourself some wiggle room, little weasel word by saying sometimes at the end, good call. I would have done the same thing. Yeah. I mean, there's science communicators that do incredible things and have done incredible things. Um, but there's science communicators that have you know done a lot of harm too. And I, I hope I'm not one of those. Um, it is remarkable to me how science communication is a radically different job than science. And I deal all the time with really, really gifted scientists doing incredible work who cannot express what they're doing to save their life. And that's okay. That's my job. That's what I'm here for. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled that there's a job available for me to do and that's mine, you know, but at the same time, I think you, and this is probably a good place to end this. Um, you, the audience, you need to be extra careful <laughs> when you're watching, you know, science communicators or, or any kind of person who communicates esoterica for a living on the internet. Because you got to ask yourself, like, does this person really know their stuff or are they just really good at talking about it? Because unless you are a deep subject matter expert, you have very little way to tell the difference, right? So I ask myself this all the time when I watch Peter Zion's videos. So Peter Zion, for people who don't know, is like a an international relations consultant or something. Um and he has a YouTube channel where he does these absolutely delightful, very simple first person, you know, holding the phone camera up uh, to talk to it with a beautiful background behind him because he's always traveling because he's a consultant and that's what they do. They travel. And he'll, you know, say something about geopolitics in 10 minutes that sounds freaking brilliant. But like, I'm not totally sure it's like, right and I'm not a subject matter expert in any of the things he talks about. So I don't know. I know lots of subject matter experts are often critical of his lens, his highly deterministic lens, his highly um, geographic deterministic lens, which is a problem that I have myself. I've been accused of geographic determinism. So of course that's how I found Peter Zion birds of a feather. Right. Um, and you know, but at the same time, he's also respected by a lot of people. But for me, it's just kind of like, Dude, you're just so good at this. You're so Peter Zion is so good at talking that he could be completely full of it, have nothing real to say, and people would still watch him. I would still watch him because it just sounds so right and smart. And maybe it is right and smart, and that's why it sounds right and smart. But it's also part of it is certainly just that the guy is a very gifted communicator. And I know sometimes he said things that I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not quite right, <laughs> you know, or, or, or it's like, it's a red flag where I know from my experience that people who express thoughts like that with that level of certainty cannot be trusted or, 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 or you, or you should, it should be a red flag for you. Like you should, you should trust, but verify, right. When someone is really certain about a very complex topic and Peter Zion is, 10,000% certain about most things that he talks about on the internet. And that might be because he reserves the most, the things that he really knows about to talk about on the internet. And that's awesome. But my viewership of Peter Zion has made me really worry and wonder, like, do I actually know what I'm talking about or am I just really good at talking? And I'm not even that good at talking. As you can see, like I'm good at writing. I'm a writer. I'm not quick. I'm not good off the cuff 
right? Like this sucks. <laughs> the second half of the show is freaking terrible, right? Um, I'm not good off the cuff because I'm not quick, but I, I'm good at writing and I worry, is that all I'm good at? Is that all I'm good at? You know, and how would you know if that's all I was good at? You, you, unless you were an expert in these fields I'm talking about, you wouldn't know. So I, only thing I can do is try to maintain humility and to try to defer to expertise. And, you know, when I say something like carrying a lot of body fat is almost certainly really bad for your health, um, or it at least is strongly correlated with bad health. Like that's not my opinion. And people will challenge it as though it's my opinion. It's not my opinion. I, you, you shouldn't care what my opinion is about that stuff. All I'm doing is articulating the consensus scientific view, you know, um, and I try to present it as such whenever I remember to, so that, you know, that's all I'm saying. Like you should not care about my scientific opinions. Uh, unless it's like an experiment that I do myself in my kitchen and maybe you should care about what I think there. But even then, remember, it's not a scientific experiment. It's for infotainment purposes only. And, you know, it's awesome. The best thing about the social internet, which is what we're doing right now, is that it does, I do think it helps keep people honest. Like I, what I see is that when I screw up in a video factually on something, the correction rises to the top in the comments. And I try to help it there. You know, I'll, I'll pin it often or I'll, I'll like it or respond to it to boost it and try to get it up higher. Most big oopses I've had get caught by the audience really quickly and they float right to the top of the comment section. And that's, that's good. That's a way in which, you know, YouTube's magic algorithms seem to be working right. And, uh, and with that, I will thank you all very much for being here on the first highly experimental Ragusea live chat podcast. Um, I, I don't know how well this went. Let me know how well you think this went and I might try it again. If you're wondering why you didn't hear about it in advance, it's cause I wanted to keep the pool of people in the chat small. And even that completely failed. Like there was, it was just going by really, really fast. So I think if I do this again, I might do the super chat thing where people can pay like five bucks or whatever to get your question or comment in the, in the chat, like surfaced, um, so that I'm more likely to see it. And I would not be doing that to make money at all. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't need your money. I appreciate your money, but I don't need it. Um, thank you. I need your viewership or, uh, but I don't need your money. Um, but I would do the sort of paid question posting thing as a way of managing demand as a way of making sure that only the people who really want to ask the question are asking the question. Um, and, and, and as a way of just limiting, limiting demand, you know, so that I, there's, it's, there's less there for me to have to comb through as I'm also talking off the cuff, which I'm not good at as we just discussed, cause I'm not quick. I'm slow. How slow were you to like stick out through this entire Adam Ragusea podcast? Oh my gosh. Where has your day gone? What poor choices you have made make better choices. And I will talk to you again next time. Pshh.